mindfulness mode. Always move forward to test those limits and push those limits, whether it's physically, whether it's emotionally, whether it's uh, uh, spiritually. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here in Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. It's great to be here again, Mindful Tribe. Great to have you here. And I've got a very special guest today. He has done so many interesting things. He's a composer, he's an entrepreneur, an adventurer, he's a teacher. He's a lifelong learner and he studied theoretical physics extensively and wow, he has done so many interesting things that we're going to be discussing on this show and central to all of those things, he's very, very into mindfulness, very interested in in how mindfulness can help us to do whatever it is that is our, our passion in life. I'm here today with Murray Hittery. Murray, are you in mindfulness mode today? I certainly hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us, Murray, what does mindfulness mean to you? (laughs) What does mindfulness mean in your world? That's a great question. And, And for me, mindfulness is about, are we living deliberately, right? Are we living, um, awake to the moment? Or are we kind of in default mode in some automated, programmed, pre-programmed, robotic kind of existence? Um, and, and I think we, we can all relate to that, certainly at some past point in our lives. We're just going through the motions. Um, and, and really, for me, it's about how present can I be? Because, you know, we talk about presence and mindfulness quite often, right? I mean, it's yes. uh, you know, the present moment, right? It's a lot of practices, a lot of meditation techniques to connect with the present moment. And I'm sure everyone that's listening has heard the term the present moment and connecting with the present moment and maybe has some, some techniques for that. But why are we interested in the present moment, right? If we take a step back and say, what does the present moment offer that is tantalizing or should be of interest? Why not live in the past? Why not live in the future? They could be wonderful places of the imagination, right? Well, it turns out that the present moment, right, for me is really intimacy's domain. If we want to have an intimate relationship with life in all the relational aspects of life, which is the people, places, and things that are around us, we want to have an intimacy with that, then we must be aware of it right now, not in the past and not in the future, because the person's right in front of us and expecting some interaction, not in the past and not in the future, but right now. And what's the benefit of intimacy? Well, the benefit of intimacy is more love, more sharing, and more relation. And of course, that creates, I think, what we all want, right, ultimately. And Murray, when did you become interested in meditation and mindfulness and that type of lifestyle? You know, I was pretty young when I discovered this path. I would say I was about 16 years old. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I grew up in a kind of very parochial, kind of closed community, very religious, um, very orthodox in that sense. And and I, I felt there was something out there that was kind of different, that was pulling me. And I, I discovered Eastern philosophy. I discovered Eastern meditation, Eastern traditions, in particular uh, Zen Buddhism in Japan, and then eventually some Vedic traditions uh, from India, of course. And and uh, I just went down the rabbit hole, uh, reading voraciously, uh, eventually traveling for a year in that 
part of the world, living in monasteries and and really uh, deepening uh, my practice uh, and and really kind of fusing that, Bruce, with Western philosophy, but also Western music, which, you know, I grew up playing music and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I grew up playing since I was about five years old. So I was more classically trained, Western classically trained, and and I discovered the Eastern music traditions, in particular the mindfulness uh, and meditation music traditions of the Zen Buddhist uh, tradition. The, the monks, you know, of the 17th and 18th century in Japan uh, composed magnificent pieces for the Japanese flute, the bamboo flute, the shakuhachi. So I actually went to Japan, found uh, a teacher, found a, a flute, and studied with one of the world's greatest uh, the entire repertoire of the of the Zen Buddhist uh, uh, monks of what they what they wrote as these music meditations, uh, prescribing every breath, prescribing uh, every gesture as a meditation. And do you still play the shakuhachi today? I do. I have a whole uh, collection of them <laughs> uh, that I'm very proud of. Yes, and and it's a it's a wonderful instrument because it's a wind instrument. Uh, by definition, it is an instrument of the breath, right? Yes. And we know from our other uh, uh, teachings and and other meditation techniques that the breath is a very powerful uh, way in to mindfulness, to the present moment, to the awareness. Um, and that's what we say, right? Uh, bring your awareness to the breath, right? Or count the breath. Uh, a certain a certain way. There's different ways to do it for different uh, uh, results, uh, and and that's what the music prescribes. It tells you exactly when to breathe, how long to hold it, uh, but it's done in a musical context, uh, and so it's wonderful music to play uh, and equally wonderful to listen to um, because it just it just takes you to another world. Your list for your listeners, you know, many will be familiar with it. Even if you don't know the name Shakuhachi, uh, you'll be familiar with the music from many soundtracks to wonderful movies and, you know, uh, that take, you know, that, that, that you've seen. And do you compose music for the, the bamboo flute? Um, I have composed, I, I composed a piece for my, my teacher, uh, the, the great master, um, Kodahashi, who lives in Kyoto still. He's actually a Japanese national treasure. Uh, he's been designated a national treasure, a living national treasure. Um, and I composed a piece for him and a violinist friend of his because there was no repertoire for a shakuhachi and a violin. Uh, his friend is a top violinist from the Tokyo Philharmonic, and they had nothing to play together. <laughs> so he asked me if I would... Uh, compose a piece for them, and I did, and we recorded that, and it's a it's a wonderful piece, and they of course they they blew it out of the water in their recording. Well, that is absolutely wonderful, and I'd love to hear more about what makes this instrument particularly special when it comes to meditation and mindfulness. You know, it's um, the Japanese have just such a wonderful relationship with nature um, and with mindfulness, and. There's a, there's a wonderful saying, Bruce, that the sound that the shakuhachi makes, its, its actual tone, uh, is the sound of the bamboo yearning to go back to the ground from which it was plucked. Uh. That's the saying of the, that, that, you know, that shakuhachi players have. And, and it really is that. It's a very angst-filled, melancholy, uh, yearning um, and, and it's this yearning for completeness, for oneness, to return to the source, essentially, is what I think that statement means, you know, and, um, and, and union and coming into union. And so, you know, even one note 
Um, the saying is you can achieve enlightenment through one note of the shakuhachi. And, uh, and, and by the way, it takes upwards of six months to even generate your first pure tone when learning it. That's how difficult of an instrument it is. So wow, six uh, months. It really could, yes, and um, it's very difficult instrument to play, and uh, it's got only five holes, like a recorder from when we were in fourth grade. Yes, um, but uh, you can generate three octaves in quarter tones with just five open holes, wow. using all kinds of gestures of the head, of the chin, uh, of the embouchure, of the uh, fingerings that are fully covering the hole, half covering, three quarters covering the hole, shading it. Uh, it's very nuanced, um, you know, as uh, as most of these things are. Well, you studied music and you have a music degree. That was in New York as well, was it not? Yes, I studied formally at New York University to be a classical composer, um, piano being my main instrument. Um, and the piano really is the composer's instrument because you have the whole orchestra there in front of you with the 88 keys, right? right. You've got your, you know, your basses, your cellos, your, your violas, your violins, your French horns, your tubas on the left side. And then you've got on the right side, your flutes and piccolos and oboes and clarinets and everything in between. So it's the composer's instrument. And, and also I found it to be an incredible instrument for the expression of mindfulness because um, the piano is a very peculiar instrument, Bruce. It's, um, it's both a percussive instrument and it's a string instrument. It's really both those characteristics fused into one instrument. Um, and so when you hit the key, right, we know there's a little hammer inside that hits the string, which vibrates the string. And the moment you hit it, that's the loudest it could be, and then it decays, right? So. It's in this, as opposed to, for instance, a string instrument, a pure string instrument like a cello or a violin, where you can start soft and actually get louder. Yes. And you can maintain it indefinitely, right, with the bow. Uh, there is no uh, decay of it unless you purposefully decay it. So the, the violin, from that point of view, a string instrument has a transcendence to it in that you, you're, it's almost uh, a supernatural ability to to uh, transcend the impermanent, yet the piano is grounded in the impermanent because each note is an expression of the impermanent by definition. So you hit the note and it decays. You hit the next note and then that one decays. And that's the succession of playing the, the piano. Um, so I found it to be so relevant to the pursuit of uh, kind of a spiritual path because ultimately I think the most important, the most powerful, the most profound teaching of mindfulness is embracing the impermanent, embracing the ephemeral nature of all things. Um, because I think that's where the root of suffering, right, lies, right, to, to even quote the Buddha on that. So the piano is a beautiful metaphor, not just a metaphor, it's a direct expression of that. Um, and so when I sit at the piano, that's really the mindset uh, and the sensibility I have when I'm approaching it and, and, and playing it. And I take that a step further, Bruce, by improvising at the piano, which is what my concerts in the mind travel experience of what I do publicly, they're all improvisations. Each one's unique, each one's different. Each one's a different path down the river, as it were. So again, another 
tip of the hat to the impermanence of all things. Well, I'm so fascinated with the work that you do with your concerts, Mind Travel. And I know that your website is mindtravel.com. So Mindful Tribe, check out the website. But tell us more about Mind Travel and how you combine visuals with with the sound and how you do this and, and what makes it unique. So... You know, when I first wanted to uh, express this publicly, you know, I did this by myself as my own personal practice, meaning I sat at the piano, sometimes upwards of an hour, hour and a half, and I would just play. And it was a way for me, Bruce, to, to reset my emotional state, to manage stress. But also over time, I was able to actually open up deeper levels of consciousness, of meditative or mindfulness exploration. Uh, through through those musical reflections. And it allowed me such breakthroughs in my own life, both emotionally and spiritually, that I felt like I wanted to share that with others. I originally wanted to share it out in nature because nature is such a profound healer in and of herself. Uh, but the challenges of playing the piano on the beach are quite, <laughs> are quite serious. Uh, it's not a great acoustic environment. Um, it's actually quite loud with the sound of the waves and the wind. Um, and of course, if you bring a real piano there, it, it, it wouldn't fare well in the salt you know, no. air. So I, I decided to actually put the entire audience in wireless headphones. Uh, and then I play an electric grand piano. And so you come to the you come to the beach, whether it's Santa Monica or, for instance, a park like in New York in Central Park. We do that every year, and you you would receive a pair of wireless headphones when you check in. And now everyone, hundreds and hundreds of people, are either in you know chairs or blankets or even walking around on the beach. And I'm playing live, and everyone has a front row seat, effectively, because it goes right to the headphones. It's completely silent on the outside, because I only transmit it through the headphones. Right. So when pe- so so passersby are looking at the scene, and they're like, "What is going on? This guy's playing the piano furiously, and um, they don't hear anything." Right. And the idea there is that it's a it's very much an internal experience, metaphorically and physically, um, and so. Now you're able to walk up and down the beach. You can even be standing in the water up to your knees with the headphones on, taking in the music, taking in the landscape. And that combination uh, is so healing and powerful. Now, when I take it to theaters, um, and whether it's you know beautiful theaters in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, all over the country, I also add the element of projected visual, art visuals. And really the idea is to give people access visually to what the music is also doing, which is providing a new way to experience reality, right? The visuals very much are taking things around us and abstracting them into a deeper level of beauty, uh, really for the point of opening up that kind of portal into wonder, to give people a different way of seeing things, because we adapt so easily as human beings. We move through life and very quickly we stop becoming enamored and we stop becoming um, awed by things so easily. Uh, And we just get used to stuff and we just start taking things for granted and we take people for granted. Now that's part of our adaptive ability as human beings, which is actually a good thing because we can adapt to adverse conditions very easily if if we choose to. But it also means that if we're not bringing our a fine-tuned and acute awareness uh, to the moment, we tend to take things for granted. 
So the music and the visuals are about, can we see anew? Can we open our eyes in a new way and seeing everything as if for the first time? And when was the first time that you did this? The first time was about six years ago um, on the beach of Santa Monica. It was an experiment. Um, it went very well and we kept expanding it. And now, you know, we'll do concerts in Central Park with upwards of a thousand people all in headphones um, on the beaches of Santa Monica and, you know, in dozens and dozens of cities across the country. And are you the only one doing this or are there other people that are also doing something under uh, what you've learned? Like, have you trained other people to do this? So um, right now I'm the only one that does this. Um, of course, there's other there's other musicians that perform meditative music. Sure. Um, but I'm doing it live in this headphone concept, which I did pioneer mm -hmm. um, in the format that I do it. And uh, I also do a long format, which is, you know, this hour continuous, which kind of in a way is a bit like Keith Jarrett, if you remember, you know, the jazz legend back in the day, where the, it was these long, long form arcs of storytelling, um, whereas a lot of musicians will play shorter, a succession of shorter pieces that are that are memorized. But I'm doing a longer range improvisation. And really, it's about the exploration of the mind that we're on together both the audience and me. Um, I think eventually it'd be great to either train other other musicians. It's, it's a very particular kind of thing because, again, it's not like I could just pop a score in front of them and tell them to play what's written. It's, it really is about improvisation. Um, although I have once scored one of my improvisations note for note. And then I did have uh, another Juilliard pianist play it. And, and it, was, it wasn't, wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it was amazing. And do you have samples of this on your website at mindtravel.com? Yeah. So on the, on the website, we have um, the music uh, available, um, different kinds of, of recordings, and also guided meditations over the music that I created for meditation and also for sleep. Um, I found that with all the travel I was doing, this is pre-pandemic, of course, uh, the travel I was doing, uh, there's a lot of jet lag, there's a lot of difficulty sleeping at times. So I created compositions that used binaural beats, which is a particular audio technology embedded in the music. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually helped facilitate meditative and sleep states, this, these alpha and theta states. Um, and, and some of those recordings, you can listen to music only or with my voice guiding it uh, in, in very powerful meditative uh, experiences as well. So all that is available on the site, uh, as well as one of the signature experiences, Bruce, which is these walking meditations. Um, I found such profound openings through walking meditation myself. And so I wanted to create those experiences for people. So um, we call them the silent walks in the sense that you have your headphones on and you're in silence and listening to the music and the guided voice, um, which kind of takes you through whether it's nature or wherever you are. Uh, and we've had so many people experience those both live, but the recordings through the website as well. And there's actually a free version of that um, at the website on the homepage. Oh, this is just fascinating. Now, I want to switch back to after you graduated from university, then you started some businesses. You started a business, I think, when you were 22. And uh, I know that from what you said when we first jumped on this call, you said you you definitely used mindfulness at that time with your businesses to make everything work. Tell our audience about that. So I graduated uh, at about 
you know, around 21, 22 years old. And I had this, I had this degree in classical music uh, as a composer. And I was like, how am I going to make a living and pay the bills with that, with this degree? And I, I really didn't want to go into writing like uh, jingles for commercials or TV. Uh, I met folks like with my similar degree that went in and did that. And they just never had time to write their symphony, to write their big music, right? Their personal music. They mm -hmm. were always on deadline and they made a decent living, but they were not writing the music they wanted to write. And I felt like that wasn't the path for me. So I wanted to find another way that I could earn a living, but still find excitement in the everyday. And and that was the, the area of technology at the time. This is now kind of early, mid-90s when the internet was just starting to uh, come to the surface of, of kind of collective consciousness. And um, I was so enamored by it. Uh, and it, by the way, it wasn't clear at the time whether it was going to actually be a thing, right? Uh, it's kind of like, in a way, how cryptocurrency is today. Like uh, People started to hear about it, but they're really confused about it. And is it going to be there for the long term or not? That's the state of affairs with the internet was at the time. But I was so... Uh, enamored by the possibilities of it. And uh, and my older brother and I decided to just jump in. We come from a family of entrepreneurs. My grandfather kind of built a family business when you know he was 15, coming to this country, to Ellis Island, without a penny in his pocket. So we, we had that, I think, in our DNA. And so we took a risk. And of course, at 22, you can take risks that you know are harder to do later in life. But we mm -hmm. took a risk and, and we started up our first company. And we made a success of it. And of course, the internet was there to stay. And and uh, we rode that wave, that first wave of the internet in throughout the 90s, uh, and then eventually taking that company public in the late 90s. Um, and uh, we're very proud of what we built uh, with that with that company. And then a series of a couple of other companies uh, after that, which we subsequently sold. Uh, but throughout all those years, Bruce, you know, of, of the startup life, of 14 hour, 16 hour days sometimes, uh, the fires you got to put out every day, all the things that go wrong all the time in, in running your own company, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to. Um, there's no way to avoid that. That's the nature of starting a business. Like don't start a business if you're not up for that um, level of dealing with just the stuff of life. There is adversity built into the game of being an entrepreneur. Uh, and there's a lot of rewards for that. Um, but if we can get better at managing the stress of it, then our capacity as entrepreneurs grows, which means we can move through uh, those challenges more efficiently and faster, which means we actually become more competitive, right? So, and, and, and we're thwarted less and we're, you know, we're not stopped at every turn, like, like many people could be. Um, and part of that for me was, was turning to music. I actually had a piano in my office uh, for all those years. And at the end of the day, like our whole staff knew, like if they were looking for me, they're like, oh, Murray's in his, in his office playing the piano. Um, and that's how I would end every day, just playing the stress out of me so mm. that the next morning, you know, I was ready, fresh and focused. That's fascinating. And I was just going to ask you if any of your businesses had any connection to music. Um, not, not particularly. We, you know, uh, kind of uh, tangentially in, in a couple of cases, but no, the core of actually the businesses, they were all really about connection. Um, and, you know, I think if, if, you know, for the people listening that, you know, may have 
a passion they, they're very clear about, but unclear about how they might make money from it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was very clear that music was my passion. I, I had no doubt about that. I was unclear at 22 how I was going to earn a living with it. Uh, and certainly how I was going to earn a, a, a good living with it, because it was a lot I wanted to do in life. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to, you know, live well. Um, and I was teaching originally, and but, you know, that didn't give me a great um, day-to-day lifestyle, right? Right. So, um, but for those listening that have that passion, but may not be clear about how to monetize it, while you're figuring that out, and there is a way to figure that out over time, but it may take time. And you may have to do something else in the meantime. It's not a binary zero-sum choice. Like you're doing something that you're passionate about or you're doing something like trudgery, like just like you hate, right? There's actually the ability, which I found in my case uh, with technology, which I never viewed myself as a technologist at all. I could barely turn on a computer growing up. Um, But it wasn't about technology. It was about possibility. Mm. And that possibility was about connection, right? That's what that technology did, right? And specifically, the internet connected people. And the businesses we created connected people for very specific purposes. Um, And connection has always been one of my core values. And that's what I achieved to do through music. I aspire to connect people to each other and to themselves, to to their deepest self. And so if you find something that actually speaks to one of your core values. It may not be your primary passion, but it will be fulfilling because it addresses and is in alignment with your core value. Well, I'm very interested in uh, something else that you're passionate about, and that is that you've studied theoretical physics extensively. Tell us about that. What got you interested in it, and why is it such a passion of yours? You know, I, I somehow got through university without, without not only without taking physics, but without studying calculus, let alone physics, uh, because I was such, you know, an arts and, and literature and, and music enthusiast at the time. Um, but then later in life, as, as an adult, I went back to it and started to study it deeply. In, in particular, I engaged a professor from Caltech where we studied privately and personally for years um, and went through with the same textbooks, but uh, on a private basis. And it was just such a treat to be able to do that. And I continue to do that um, because not only is it about lifelong learning, but for me, um, the reason why I do music is because I'm trying to gain a deeper understanding of the self, the emotional self, the intellectual self, and the spiritual self. And that's the same reason why I turn to theoretical physics, because it is also trying to give us a deeper understanding through a different modality of the universe, right? And there ultimately is no difference between understanding the universe and understanding ourselves. The two are deeply rooted and connected together. And so to me, it was all about that common curiosity of developing a deeper, deeper understanding of the world around me. And, and physics was the way in to that. Um, and once... And once you uncover what physics makes available, that what we see is only the tip of the iceberg, that there is a hidden from our senses uh, universe that 
is not just about, you know, on, on a simple level, right? It's about the spectrum of light unavailable to us, right? Uh, we see only a very limited uh, amount of reality, but there's spectrum of electromagnetic light that's, you know, on both sides of the visible spectrum. Same thing with what we can hear. And so there's such a profound availability of experience outside of our senses. And yet we tend to think that what we sense is the reality that's available. Um, now add to that what theoretical physics makes available to us through the understanding of Einstein's theories like the theory of special relativity, the theory of general relativity. Um, you start to now see the universe in a very different way because time starts to take on a very different understanding. So things like time dilation, right, which, you know, are from the special uh, theory of, rel of relativity, I use them metaf metaphorically in my music. I start creating rhythms that start to um, dilate and stretch and overlap with each other in the same way that um, from a physics point of view, uh, a person on a train moving at a certain speed will experience time differently than a person stationary at the train station, right? Um, we learned that from Einstein. And so I kind of create that effect metaphorically through the music, uh, and it helps me gain a deeper understanding of these, of these physical phenomena, which are very much out of our everyday grasp, right? We don't experience relativity on a day-to-day -day basis because we're not, none of us are moving at that kind of speed. You'd have to right. be moving at a fraction of the speed of light, a significant fraction of the speed of light to feel the effect, right. um, which we don't. So... So it's things like that, which I use music to peer through the veil of, uh, of our senses and try to gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of. One of the challenges in your life, Murray, has been the passing of your sister. And I know that that's, that's quite a powerful story in its own. And you've used healing through music to get through that, but you also help others with mm -hmm. grief, with healing through music. Can you tell us about this part of your journey? You know, we all on the uh, journey of the human experience will experience something uh, to do with grief, profound grief, intense grief. Uh, at some point, there will be some adversity at some point. Um, there's also grief in many forms. It's not just the death of a loved one or someone you care about. It could also be the ending of a relationship, a divorce, the uh, ending of a business you might have to close down, which, of course, many people had to do over the last year and a half. So there's lots of different kinds of grief. Um, they're all kind of their own deaths in their own way, and they require their own mourning in their own way. Um, now, for me, I, I dealt with a, a very intense grief of my 23-year-old sister. Um, I was extremely close with. We were on vacation together and there was a horrific accident, sudden and tragic, which she was killed in instantly. And I had to deal with the aftermath of that. Um, everything from calling my parents to let them know that their only daughter was just killed. Uh, you know, this is now 6,000 miles away, by the way, from New York. Um, you know, and, and everything in the aftermath of that. Um, and so when you're in the face of that kind of adversity, the, the main decision the main question that has to be answered is, do you want to live? Like that's profoundly, I think, what rests there, what resides there. Um, and it, it may not necessarily be literal, although it certainly can be. Um, for me, it was less literal of a question and more uh, what kind of life was I going to lead? 
was I actually going to live the rest of my life or was I going to just play it out, you know, default in a depression, right? That's certainly not living. So that's, that's a prolonged death of sorts. Right. Um, and, and, and for many people, it is very real. Is it, you know, they, many people might want to end their lives um, literally through suicide. So there's a lot to contend with there. And, but once we answer that question, right, then if, we, if the answer is yes, that we want to live, then we must get the pain out of us. We must feel through it. And that is why I turned, Bruce, to music, because music is the language of emotion, right? We say when we don't have words for something, we turn to music, and yes. somehow it, it holds us in that space. And that's what I did. And I, I played that pain out of me day after day, week after week. And eventually that burden lifted and it, it, it transmuted that pain into what lies underneath it in grief, which is love. That is why we're in such pain is because there's such a profound love for the person that is no longer with us. And so I was able to then go back to that, the root of that love and I carry her with me at every concert. I, I, I visualize her with me at the piano and, and I, I, I kind of embrace that as part of the performance and, and hopefully represent her in the performance. That is fascinating that you do that. I know you've also done a lot of climbing. You've climbed Mount Cook. You've climbed Mont Blanc. You've climbed some different mountains. Tell us about the mindfulness of doing this and why this is a part of your life. You know, I think at first it was about um, testing my limits, understanding what I was made out of, made up of, both mentally and emotionally. Because while, yes, there's a physical aspect to these things, at some point uh, the physical falls away and it's your mental state that will get you to the top or not. Um, I wanted this to test myself, see what I was made out of. And, and that cer it certainly provided that. What then opened up, right, the unexpected, the unintended consequence of all that was a much closer relationship with nature. Um, I mean, I would stop along the way of these, uh, you know, uh, climbing trails and hiking trails and just listen to a, a small stream or brook for sometimes an hour, <laughs> just, just listening to the purity of the sound in nature unadulterated by the urban landscape. And it just captivated me. Um, and time would disappear. And I, I, don't, I don't even think I called it mindfulness then because I, I just didn't probably didn't even know to call it that. But it, it spoke to me in that way. And it captivated me. And over the years, I started to do more physical activities, some of them extreme, we might view as extreme, because I was looking for an extreme connection and an extreme relationship with nature. So whether it's mountain climbing to get to get close to the earth, to the rock, you know, scaling a, a sheer cliff a thousand feet high where the where the rock is one inch from you, you see things that you can never see when you're a hundred feet away or a mile away, right? Um, and so there was an appreciation of the earth uh, with I, I took on river kayaking um, and and uh, it, it immersed me in the water, the moving water, the, tur the turbulence uh, of the rapids where I became the water. I became the river a perspective that you can't get by glancing at it or observing it from the shoreline uh, from the riverbank. Um, I learned to be I was a paragliding pilot. 
because I wanted to feel what it was like to be the wind, not to feel the wind from the ground, but to actually be the wind and rise and fall like a bird. And that enabled me to do that. Uh, no engine, just just using the currents of the wind. So those were all ways to create an immediacy, an intimacy with nature. And how did we start this conversation was about intimacy, right? It's, yes. It was exactly about how can I become more intimate with nature to really feel that oneness um, of nature. And it, it's not just healing, but incredibly informative um, to the human experience and, and eventually then translating that into my music. Well, that's fascinating that you translate this into your music. And I know you've done marathon runs as well, scuba diving. You've done so many different things. You've packed a lot into your life. What's next? What's missing? What is it that Murray would love to do that you haven't done? Well, to, uh, at the top of the list is having kids. I haven't done that yet. And I, I hope to do that someday. It's not the kind of thing I could just do on my own, it turns out. So, so <laughs> not so uh, easily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could, but it's probably not desirable. Um, so that's definitely on, on, on my list. Um, next up for me is actually a, a major opera project, um, mm -hmm. which I'm hoping to stage in, in about a year. So look, look out for that on the website, the same website when, when we announce it. Uh, that'll be a, a beautiful project, and it'll be an opera that is actually based in mindfulness, uh, oh. the story of it. And, and uh, it's, it's one of the classic spiritual hero stories. So uh, I'll leave it at that and, and surprise uh, everybody when it's announced. Yeah, that sounds exciting. I'll have to have you back on the show when you have that ready to go. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be just great. Now, I, I want to ask you a question about bullying because I've worked in the field of bullying prevention for about 10 years and, and found that bullying and mindfulness are very closely connected. If, if I can teach children and adults what mindfulness is, then bullying just declines. But do you have a story about bullying either when you were younger, in business or whatever, where mindfulness would have made a difference? You know, I, I, I grew up in, a, in, I wouldn't say the roughest of neighborhoods in Brooklyn, but it was a little rough. And um, I did get kind of uh, bullied by some of the local kind of, uh, you know, in the schoolyard kind of thing. They mm -hmm. stole my bike one time and stuff like that. Um, you know, nothing, nothing physical, no physical harm was done. Um, so it's, I think as a kid, it's, it's, it's a great tool because ultimately it's about how we interpret those moments, Right. And mindfulness um, is, a, is a powerful tool that allows us, if the kid has, if a child has this skill, to frame the experience in a way that they understand it's not about them, you know, in terms of the one being bullied. Uh, and also for the one bullying, right, we, we know, and I think, I think you would assert that, that bullying is done, it, it, there's, a, there's a deep insecurity in, in the person that is doing the bullying. Um, and it's coming out in this way, and, and, and there was obviously poor modeling going on in, in wherever they, they learned it from. Um, so more mindfulness can, can also help dissolve that. Um, I would say in the business context, I remember clearly um, I was negotiating a, uh, a, a lease for office space, and it was a classic New York uh, landlord that, um, that, I mean, he bullied me so hard this is a multi-million dollar lease. It was a lot on the line. It was not an insignificant amount. And so much so that in the office during the negotiation, um, 
I was screamed at so loudly. It, it rattled me to the core. I actually got, I never experienced anything like that as an adult. I mean, to, it was so jarring. It moved me to tears. I had to excuse myself. Uh, I composed myself and I was able to come back and actually not take it personally. I had some years of meditation at this point. So it's not that it didn't impact me. It certainly did. It, it did, I wasn't as Teflon as I wish I could be, but I was able to take a pause, come back, and not take it personally, and 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 drive the negotiation back, and 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 ends up, you know, getting getting to a, a fair uh, agreement, um, but not, you know, letting myself be bullied by that, and without coming back with equal measure, right? Without screaming back, with just maintaining my composure. So I was very proud I was able to do that. Um, it's a shame that I, I did have to experience that, but we can't control other people. We can only control our own responses and reactions. Yes, absolutely. That's true. As we move forward in the interview, Murray, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 okay. second answers are perfect. The first question is this, who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? You know, I, I would say actually my, uh, my father, without him even knowing it, um, he is one of the most calm, collected, stable individuals um, I have ever met. And so his ability to respond with equanimity in, in all conditions is remarkable and something I've taken lesson from. And you've already alluded to this with your story with what happened in business, but tell us this, how has mindfulness affected your emotions or how you deal with and handle your emotions? You know, for me, it's been a, a key skill to learn and to fine tune and grow and build that muscle uh, because in all areas, um, whether it's in business, whether it's, you know, getting a coffee at the local Starbucks and, you know, they get your name wrong and they make you wait 20 minutes or whatever it is. Um, these are all opportunities for our emotions and our thoughts to get the better of us. Uh, and uh, mindfulness just allows me to, to have a non-personal approach to all in all these situations, which uh, allows for much less stress and uh, much more calm and peace. Well, tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. You know, I, I learned to breathe by playing the Japanese flute. I, what I didn't know was actually playing the piano. Um, once I learned this from from my teacher, there's there's a profound ability to improve your piano playing through proper breathing. And you wouldn't think so because you're not generating the sound with your, <laughs> with, your, with your breath, like a wind instrument. But it turns out that if you breathe properly, it, it comes through the music um, as you control the breath through playing the piano. Right. If you could recommend any book at all that's somehow related to mindfulness, what would that be? You know, I would say my... Uh, one of the earliest books that influenced me, and still to today, I'll reread it. It's almost like a manual for the path of mindfulness. And that's the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, the wow. classic book uh, that won the Nobel Prize for Literature back in the 40s, I think. Um, so it's, oh, it's about 100 years old, and it still holds. Wow, that's fascinating. And I'll put that in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. The final question, is there an app of any description which you know about that can help with mindfulness? 
you know, there's uh, there's an app that I am actually a part of. They they have my music and my guided meditations on, which is Insight Timer. Yes. Um, and what's nice is that it's a free app for much of the content. Um, you can pay for some uh, premium content, but, um, much of the content is available there. And, um, uh, there's a, a good amount of mind travel content uh, on there as well, but lots of other teachers to explore. Yeah. Insight timer is great. I'm on that as well. It's a, it's a terrific app for sure. Well, it's been really fascinating talking to you, learning about your, your music and how you create this incredible music live at your concerts. And of course your website, mindtravel.com. So Murray, as we wrap up the interview, could you give us a final word of advice if somebody's listening to this and they just felt, gee, I wish I could become as grounded as Murray or I wish I could accomplish so much like it seems as though he has in his life. What would your word be of advice? I would say that the way I've been able to remove the sense of limitation from my life, it's not that I had that naturally. I certainly had moments where I questioned my limits. But I always move forward to test those limits and push those limits, whether it's physically, whether it's emotionally, whether it's uh, uh, spiritually. And, um, and really, it's about mindset at the end of the day. The quality of our mindset will determine directly the quality of our lives. And so by working on mindfulness, by meditating, by listening to the kind of music that I talked about, um, by bringing deliberate reflection to life – we are living more purposefully, more deliberately, and we're not accepting, and this is the key, we're not accepting the thoughts and emotions that arise as our only reality. They're pointers, they're informative, they're data points, but they're not absolute reality. They're not us at the end of the day. They are not me, they're not you, they are just an arising in our consciousness and they will come and they will go like a passing cloud in the sky. But you are, you the listener, are more than your thoughts, more than your emotions. You are deeper than that. And through these practices, you can get in profound touch with that. And that is the place where you are limitless. Murray, thank you so much for all you do to help to help the people in this world. Thank you for sharing all of this on Mindfulness Mode. And I just appreciate it so very much having you on the show. Thank you, Bruce. Likewise, that was wonderful. Yeah, all the best to you. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Murray Hittery. I really enjoyed it. Wow, he has done so many amazing things and, and so many different things, such a diversity. Well, yes, I really enjoyed meeting Murray. So uh, also, I just wanted to mention that in the show notes, I put a link where you could download a sleep meditation that I put together. Maybe you're having a little challenge falling asleep or you're not sleeping as deeply as you would like to. So there's a guided meditation that you can get for free. Simply go to mindfulnessmode.com sleep and it's yours. 
So I invite you to do that. And I also invite you to just let me know if you have any comments on the episode, comments on the show. Uh, It's an email to me, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com would be so much appreciated. I always love hearing from you, Mindful Tribe. So with that, take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.